Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Say Who Say Pod. He is Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capel. Uh, and we're both on Substack. How about that? Well, that's where I want to start. How's it going? It's going well. Um, on Montlake.com. That is right. On Montlake.com. I was all geared up to tell people specifically to visit www.onmontlake.com, but I got the domain issue ironed out. So the naked domain. Hell works. yeah. You can just type it straight in. You can link it. You can tell your friends. Uh, on Montlake.com, seven days old, a week old as of you listening to this. Um, very pleased with the response so far. I don't know. I had no no reasonable expectation of numbers or anything that's just you know it's such a new a new space as they would say um <laughs> i hate that word i freaking hate the word space so do I. like it i really want to kick anyone who says it to me right in the nuts like i really do like that's really a space that's exciting it's like space oh, yeah. i always think of the muppets and you're too young to know this but when they would do pigs that's in no i'm not too space. young I'm not too young. That's exactly what I think of. This is the same, I think of the same thing. <laughs> Pigs in space. We really want to be a leader in this space. Like, shut up. Shut up. There, are, um, there aren't that many, like, team-specific substack pages, um, especially in college football. I think it might just be me and Justin Ferguson. And then, like, you know, Tyson Alger, obviously, at the I-5 corridor, writes some about Oregon Ducks football, but it's it's not – so narrow to just that so um did not know what to expect very happy um with with everybody who has subscribed so far we're coming up on almost a hundred friends of the program which is hell yeah those zoom calls are going to be interesting i might have to chop it into two might have to do two groups of 50 (laughs) or something like that i was not expecting that many so that's really cool um i am a big proponent of taking your wins Right. Like this is especially when you work in journalism, which is essentially I've realized like it's it it would be similar to seeing a clear cut forest is is what the actual industry looks like in a lot of ways right now. Um, And having moments where you step out on your own or you have something happen like you really like if there's one message that I could sort of convey and that I hope. I hope you're excited about this, man, because that's a really cool, like there are not a lot of times right now in this industry where you get something where you're like, Oh, that's, that's really exciting. I'm, I'm really pumped to see how things are going. Yeah. Um, I'm excited to see where it goes and and build it up. And it's been cool having conversations with, with people who kind of do the same work and have tried the, either the Substack route or the newsletter route and get some advice from them, not just on best practices, but on just kind of preparing mentally, like, Hey, you know, launch is fun. And, and this first week and first month, it's going to be amazing numbers wise. And you know, the number of people you convert from free to paid and who's reading and who's opening the emails and stuff. But like, it's okay when that levels off because it will. And it doesn't mean that it's failing or that you need to, you need to pivot or anything like growth isn't always linear and those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes. I uh, feel like the the response has been very encouraging so far. Um, and like this wasn't the worst timing with spring practices starting. Got a couple of, you know, finite, ideal tangible timing. events to go write about. And you got um, a press pass with onmontlake.com on it. That's right. A parking pass. Yeah. 
I, I, That's I, exciting. I'm, I'm auctioning off the other one. It's good till August. Um, you know, <laughs> don't kid about that, man. You'll get yourself in trouble. <laughs> no, I'm very much kidding. Um, the, uh, the offense looked real good on Monday. Isn't that breaking is news? Is that typically what happens? Is that typically what happens in spring? Does the offense, the offense is usually ahead? Like I, I, I remember in NFL training camps, it was always the defense would be ahead early on. Um, so is the offense looking good? Is, is, that, is that a particularly noteworthy sign about all the returning talent? I think so. I mean, I, th- I think it would have been really weird if they didn't. Like if they came out with their Heisman candidate quarterback and returning like all <laughs> conference receivers and just couldn't complete a pass, that would be like, oh, what happened to these guys? Um, the defense, this is, this is like I, I always promise myself I'm not going to like fall into this this cliche of the way that we cover football practice in this industry of like either the offense won or the defense won. And like there's a winner each day and it's one side or the other. Like now it's practice. They're practicing. Yes, that's correct. They're, they're all attempting to improve in concert so that they may pursue victory on the, on the football field come September. But the defense did look a lot better um, today, Wednesday, a little more pressure on the quarterback and, um, didn't really see any explosives completed downfield, which they probably felt pretty good about because there were a bunch of them on Monday. So they're also just, yeah, I think this staff likes to really mix younger guys in. Like, you know, Asa Turner's not taking a ton of reps with the ones right now because I think, you know, they, they know that that's a guy they're going to they, – they know who he is. They know what they've got with him. And um, some other guys who, you know, maybe have put a lot of mileage on their bodies and now is kind of the time to let the – let sort of the younger guys or maybe some of the guys who are on the fringe of the depth chart and get a really good look at them and let them get a bunch of reps and moving guys all over the offensive line, um, which I wrote about and just sent out to subscribers about 15 minutes ago. Um, so that's kind of the, the interesting competition right now uh, between appears to be Julius Bulo, Nate Kalepo and Garen Hatchett kind of for those two starting guard spots that, Jackson Kirkland and Henry Bynavalu vacated. So be interesting to see who comes out of that. It's also like really hard for us to evaluate. There's not a lot of contact right now. They're not even in pads yet. And you know, you don't really know what you're, what you're looking at when um, there's, you know, there's not tackling. So the lines line play is, are the hardest things to evaluate uh, in, in, in any practice situation, just because, there is so much difference. Like a, some of the drills are stilted one way or the other. And, and so uh, a result can be misleading. You're like, Oh, this person won in pass protection. You're like, yeah, well that's a one-on-one and that, that defensive player really should have the advantage here. Or you're not really watching. It's they're not hitting. They're, they're not trying to knock each other on their butt at least early on. So that can make it confusing. It's usually more interesting to watch where guys are getting reps. Yeah, um Garen Hatchett seems like they're they're trying every position with him. I read he, that. I'm looking you said that they he's playing some right tackle. Yeah, which I Jackson Kirkland did mention when he was on with us a couple of weeks ago that he'd taken some reps at tackle and I feel like that was news to me or you know, maybe they did that during the season or maybe he did do it like in camp or in spring and I just noted it and forgot. Um but yeah, he's he's an athletic guy. They seem to really like him at guard last year. I think that's where he was on the depth chart. He can play center. 
his younger brother, I think, definitely is going to slot at center. And that was kind of like talking to, to Landon Hatchett. Um, when he came on his official visit, they kind of sat down and had a plan for him for like, hey, here's how you can come in and compete at center. And Garen will play a different position so that you're not like competing directly with him for playing time, which I think was a concern he had. He that would like if if there was one reason why he was he wouldn't have come to Washington, it would have been because like, you know, he didn't he didn't want it to be a zero sum game for like, you know, happiness between him and his brother where like only one of them gets to, you know, to to be a starter at the end of the day. So um he and he's been there also at the first couple of practices. He's not enrolled yet, but he's He's been in attendance at least, um, so he's he's getting an early read on things. Which of the spots, and this this might be early to tell, but the the spots where there's real competition, he's, I, I think there's a pretty good sense that uh, melee is going to start at center. Am I wrong about that? It sure seems That's, that way, yeah. And then you've got the two guard spots that are very much sort of open, but trying to trying to figure out who slots in there. What other what other spots do you see competition? and where there's really kind of some uncertainty about who's going to wind up being the starter. You know, I guess running back because mm-hmm. you've got Cam Davis back and Daniel Nagata is there now. Dylan Johnson will be there, the Mississippi State transfer, um, at the end of the month He'll for spring quarter. So they'll practice Friday, then break till March 29th, and he'll be he's in the group that's coming in for those practices. So I think people are kind of looking at him as, as – the top candidate to lead them in carries, but you know, Cam Davis had a, a solid year last year, scored a bunch of touchdowns. Obviously they really like him. That's going to be an interesting competition just because you know, I think you kind of know that those three guys are, are going to get carries. And then, you know, w- what's Richard Newton's role, right? Does he have, <laughs> does he have one? Does he carve it out? Does, does Danny have to find a new favorite player? Does he have to go buy a new replica Jersey that says O'Neal on the back instead yeah. of Newton? I don't know. Yeah, it's it's always a question. I'm going to always have a huge, gigantic crush. And then we've got, we're pretty sure that the Oklahoma State transfer is starting at one cornerback spot, right? And is there there a question at the other one? Do we assume that's that's Powell's spot? What what do you think of how how the corners look? So right now he so Jabbar Muhammad, the transfer from Oklahoma State, he's he's basically just watching right now. Um, and I I don't think that's health related. It always could be. I mean, I don't know. Um, I remember. I feel like last year a couple of the transfers, even like the older guys who were experienced, I feel like they kind of had them do a lot of observing at first, you know, didn't just immediately throw them in with the ones, but like Raylan Goforth is, is taking reps. I mean, he's out there with the twos at linebacker. He took some reps with the ones on Wednesday and got to the quarterback once. And I think he even forced a fumble during on a completion during seven on seven. So he was, he was disruptive. He's kind of showing, you know, why they went out and got him. Um, I do expect Muhammad to be, one of the starting corners, right? I mean, I don't, you don't go and get a guy like that with that kind of power five experience if you're not expecting him to be a guy. So um, Elijah Jackson has looked good at the, at the other spot. And he's someone that they've spoken highly of his, uh, he, he did tell us on Monday, his 40 inch vertical was down from 43 inches last year. So um, pretty good athlete. I think he said he had like a 10, 11 broad jump too on their testing day. Um, and he like, I think he would have played a lot last year if he could have stayed healthy. I forget if it was the I think it was the Arizona State game or the UCLA game where he played a lot and they didn't have a pass completed on his side. Um so he's got some he's got some ability. JV on Green is the other corner running with the ones right now with with Muhammad still 
kind of watching. Um, played as a true freshman, got some decent length. I think they, you know, they like him. He, you know, had some some growth moments last year as as true freshman cornerbacks often do, but um, he might still have a bright future also. And then Thaddeus Dixon is a junior college transfer, and he's kind of the third guy right now with Muhammad not really doing anything 11 on 11. Um, in fact, Green kind of pulled up with, you know, I don't know if it was a hamstring or, or what, maybe a cramp um, late in practice today. It seemed like he was probably fine, but uh, did come out for a couple of plays, and like Dixon was the first guy in for him. So looks like those four right now, um, there's no true freshman in the program yet. Caleb Presley will be here mm-hmm. uh, for these last 12 practices later this month and into April. We'll see if he factors in. Um, but, you know, maybe one of those guys can can kind of rise up in the in the summer. I, like, Leroy Bryan is the one that, that I'm most interested to see. Why? Um, he was only a three-star guy, but I think the consensus has kind of been that he was underrated. He was a really, really good high school player on both sides of the ball, so – you know, maybe he's somebody who can play sooner rather than later, but they do have a few guys this spring that are going to get a good look. Can we back up to the the vertical leap uh, mention that you made? Because I, I think I told you that I'm I'm starting a bad book report series of things where I'm going to write a review of what is a terrible book. Yeah. And the first one that I'm doing is Charlie Weiss. <laughs> I, you said vertical leap. I immediately thought of Charlie Weiss. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we'll get to it here in just a second. But Weiss wrote a book after his first year at Notre Dame and uh, it's called No Excuses. And like the reason I picked the book A is it's just objectively funny that there was an autographed copy of Charlie Weiss's book here at the Strand, which is one of New York's big bookstores. Um, the the other part is just like reading through, like there's nothing that puts in perspective how sort of arbitrary most of the sports narratives are. Like that, you can tell the same story. And it really doesn't matter what you say as long as you're successful. It'll sound good. Like Charlie Weiss's story probably sounded really good after that first year at Notre Dame. And now it's just hilarious because we kind of know a little bit more about Charlie Weiss. But uh, one of the things that becomes very apparent early on is how full of crap he is. Where I'm like, yeah, I don't think this is true in the book. And I came across in the third, in the third chapter, Charlie Weiss, when he went to Notre Dame as a student, was there at the same time as Joe Montana. And he references, he said, Joe Montana had a 40-inch vertical leap. <laughs> I was like, no way that's true. Absol- that's ridiculous. And this was going to be in the list because I have a growing list of things that I think that Charlie Weiss is completely full of crap about in this book. And I looked it up. And, and I'm not sure if it was 40 inches, but like Joe Montana was known to have a ridiculously high vertical leap. So I was like, huh. Wow. Shame maybe, on you. Maybe, I know. <laughs> That's for doubting but like if you heard that you're like joe montana has a 40 inch vertical leap you're like, that's the biggest pile of crap i've ever heard that's ridiculous you're like yeah no no like apparently he had there were like discussions about him having a six foot ten high jump while he was in high school in wow. pennsylvania which and that's like seven foot high jumper is special like that is that is an extraordinary number for any high school athlete let alone one of the great quarterbacks of all time so anyway uh we we can we can now resume with like modern and and relevant things, but I thought that would be enjoyable. So when when is the book report coming out? <laughs> I'm not sure. I gotta wade through this thing. Uh, probably it'll probably be two weeks from now. Um, I might my, my second book has already been picked out as well. It's called The Power of Negative Thinking by Bob Knight. <laughs> <laughs> 
That one's not autographed though. The Charlie Weist one is autographed. So I'll be I'll be I'll be giving that to one lucky subscriber. Is it personalized? <laughs> no, it's not. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> Man, the first story of the book, like the, which I I'm pretty sure is just like him talking out his ass is him describing how he called the chancellor at Notre Dame to complain about the football team when he was a sophomore and that the chancellor answered the phone for his complaint uh, after on a Sunday after having attended mass and then urged young Charlie to come down so they could talk in person about it and inform Charlie that he needed to be a better fan and less of a know-it-all. And I'm like, I really don't think that happened. Like, I really don't think 20-year-old Charlie Weiss spoke to the chancellor of Notre Dame about the, it just, it seems, it seems like one of those things, but maybe it's as true as Joe Montana's 40-inch vertical leap. Uh, The all-time best Charlie Weiss quote, quote about Charlie Weiss, not spoken by Charlie Weiss. You know what it is? You know what I'm going to say? No. When Kansas hired him, and their athletic director said, I set out to find the best, and I found Charlie Weiss. <laughs> you know what, man? That that thing, like, that's one of the rare quotes that holds up. Like, you could use it for the hiring and the firing. <laughs> <laughs> and it's <Yeah>. equal effective. <laughs> I started out aiming high, and this is what I wound up with. (laughs) It can't all be caviar, folks. Not when you're Kansas football. I I thought of this in uh, during fall camp, and I just I it slipped my mind, and I forgot to ask you. But now that I'm covering spring ball, and it's it's very similar. Do you miss being at training camp at all? Was was there anything about covering training camp and watching practice and and distilling what happened in practice for readers that you really liked that, that, you know, you wish you got to do it every now and then, or was that totally just like, man, I'm glad I don't do no, that. No, man, actually, this is, and this would be, this would be true for a lot of the things that I did as a reporter. I liked the actual activity. I liked getting to know the players. I think that training camp or spring practice, like those things, it's actually a very rare opportunity to be able to speak to coaches and, players at a time when there's less stress on them i think there's opportunities to learn more about the game and about the people like i actually really like going out and watching it and seeing the activities i hate the way it's covered like what and and this is kind of already mentioned it a little bit of that idea of the offense or the defense winning or who's going to I can't tell you from watching practice who's going to have a good season. Like, I, I, I can't. And I know that coaches have a better read on it, but I'm not sure they can tell you either. Like, they can tell you what they hope for or what they like seeing, and but they're, they're not going to be honest about that, right? Like, all you're going to get, if you ask them how players are looking, with a regard to that upcoming season is this very, very, it's the best case scenario, right? They're going to tell you what they hope happens. And so it generally becomes this exercise in wishful thinking. So I would say that that holds true for a lot of things that I covered. Like I actually liked covering the combine. I liked talking to the players. 
I hated how the combine was covered in which you would ask someone what did they hope to run and then report that as if it meant something. What a player hopes to run has absolutely zero bearing, A, on what they will run, and B, what it would mean if they did run that because it's such a small data point on what will actually be the decisions that are made. Yet you do have an opportunity to get to know the players a little bit and to see, like, I think it's super interesting. You you write about today's update on on onmontlake.com. You talk about Hatchet playing in these different spots. Some at right tackle. He's there at center a little bit. Like, I think that's fascinating. Like, what is, like, what are they considering or the thought process that goes in there? I don't want or think that you can project hard and fast, like, what is Washington's offensive line going to look like week one and how good will it be based on what you see? But I I think it can be incredibly informative. I understand, too, like, fans get irritated by the the spring star or the the camp star who doesn't perform during the season, Mm -hmm. especially if it happens more than once. And, like, you, you mean you kind of wrote about that phenomenon on, on your site a little bit, the dang apostrophe with about Jared Kelnick, right? That like, okay, again, are we, we doing this again with him? But, but on the other, on the, on the flip side of that, like he's in a bunch of homers. Yes. You know, <laughs> so like, yes. I, you can't ignore it. Like, look, man, it, if there was something you wanted to see from this guy, this spring, this is it, you know, does it mean he'll be a, a you know, he'll, he'll be a serviceable big leaguer finally, you know, who knows, right? And that's that's the question. And of course that's the big question is how transferable is, is spring training performance. And we've seen a million examples where it's it's not at all. But um I understand like the the college football equivalent of that and why it's irritating. But also like there have been times when guys looked really, really good in camp. I like Dylan Morris looked great in camp in twenty twenty one. Which um, coaches- actually was important, right? Like it it told you something about the direction that team was going. In, at least in terms of quarterback and who was going to play. it's. I think what you just said there, if I could say the thing that I dislike about the coverage, it's the certainty that some people apply. And generally mm-hmm. this comes from, I would say, that media members who overemphasize their level of expertise in, in distinguishing what they're seeing. Um, Dave Bowling, who was a longtime... Tacoma News Tribune columnist and before that worked in Spokane like Dave played football at a pretty high level like Dave played at the University of Louisville and Dave loves line play Dave Bowling could watch line drills and tell you what was happening Ray Roberts who's the former offensive tackle for the Seahawks it was a first round pick out of Virginia he can tell you what's happening there I can't watch one-on-one pass blocking drills and tell you who's going to be good for the season and so many people like insist on that being their value and it i became very (laughs) i became antagonistic about it and it still comes out sometimes where i'm just like yeah you don't know that i don't want to hear you try and tell me that you're an expert on that because i i know what i know and i think i know as much as you and i'm an idiot uh so that would be my one my 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 one uh, disclaimer but like telling you who played well I I can remember when Anthony Von Tour so he was a safety when he first came to Washington I think and they moved him to corner when Neuheisel got there and I remember 
Bud Withers saying, like, you watched him in spring ball and you're like, he looks like a player. And he was. So, like, those things do happen. And they're, they're interesting. I think that idea of opening up the possibility of, hey, this is a guy new, playing in a new spot or this guy looks a little different. I think those are always exciting. I just hate the level of certainty that's applied to it. Yeah. Like, I'm the last guy who's going to try to tell you, like, oh, this, this guy should be starting at left tackle. Like, look at his hand <laughs> technique, you know? <laughs> it's funny. Do now, like what do I can that? what I can do, do is I have access to the offensive line coach and the That's head coach and the offensive coordinator, and I can ask them questions to to you know to ascertain who's who's doing who's playing well, who looks good, who's improved, and why. Like, what is it that they're better at? And like, if you read today's newsletter, like you'll see, you know, Garen Hatchet. That was a thing all the way back to being at, at Ferndale. I went up and and saw him for a story um, when he was being recruited before he'd even committed to Washington and. I remember, you know, even back then him saying, yeah, you know, we run the wing tee here. So obviously I know anywhere I go, they're going to throw the ball a lot more. So like, you know, pass setting and pass blocking and pass protection, like I'm going to have to get, I'm basically, I'm going to have to learn that from scratch. I'm going to have to. And so he talked a little bit about that today, about that was a big priority when he got to college. And, you know, I asked him, well, why, like, what, what is it that you have to learn? You know, what are, what is the technique? You know, why? how are you a different lineman now that you've, you've gotten some, you know, really intensive coaching and skill building at, at this part of, you know, this, this phase of playing O line and you gave a pretty good detailed response. So it's those, those are the sort of thing, like that's why watching practice is instructive because you can, you can see who's practicing where, who's taking reps where, and if you cover like a whole camp, you can see a guy rise from, the twos up to the ones or drop from the ones down to the twos. And you can ask questions around that. And, um, I, what I find more instructive is to ask like other players who looks good mm-hmm. because they're more likely to be like directly honest coaches have, you know, their responses are going to be political to some degree, right? They've mm-hmm. got feelings to protect. If they say that one guy looks really good and don't mention another guy at the same position, like they, they legitimately have, like they got to worry about how that plays and that's all reasonable. And those are all things they take into consideration. Players are going to just going to be a little more direct. Like, well, you asked me who looks good. I'm going to say this guy, you know, Mm -hmm. but also like they're, they're in meetings and they watch film and they see who the coaches praise and they see who the coaches look at the film and say, yes, this is how you do it. This guy, you know, someone like Michael Penix jr knows the offense inside and out, knows football inside and out. He's in his sixth year. He knows what good looks like. You know, he might, like I remember talking to him last year after the Oregon game about Taj Davis and how he played like eight snaps in that game. And that was, I think that was the, that was the only target he had. And how like, wow, you know, that's, do you, do you even notice when you're out there that, oh, okay, that's, that's Taj out there. He hasn't been out there most of the game. Interesting. And he's just like, he's like, Taj is a dog. It's like, I'd throw it to Taj, you know, I'd throw it to Taj every time. Like I'd throw it to him every time he gets that coverage. And so like those questions, those types of questions that, that, you know, are derived from what you see with your eyes during camp and stuff. um, Those, those can lead you to more telling answers about like who legit, rather than relying on my own eyes for just, Hey, this guy, you know, this guy at corner, I really, I really like his press technique, you know, (laughs) he's, he flips his hips well. Like I'm not a scout, you know, it'd be awesome if I had that skill set. And I, you know, I feel like I I would hope I know more about football than the average person watching just based on how much of it I've watched and 
how many people I talk to about it, but like, I'm not, I'm never going to rely on my own, my own perception as far as just, okay, I don't need to, you know, I don't need to know what the coach thinks about this. I know what I saw. So I paused the recording. So you, none of you heard it, but Danny took a break to go put his dinner in the oven. Um, <laughs> it's a chicken. And it is. I'm, I'm roasting a chicken. I'm using a, a it's a, I've got a, cookbook of one pot recipes i'm roasting a chicken in a cast iron skillet it's going to be a lemon and thyme pan sauce that i make to go with it uh you you preheat the oven to 450 with the skillet in there so you get the skillet nice and hot then you put the whole chicken in the skillet that's the step that i just took so it's gonna it's gonna sit in there for a good 20 minutes or so and then i've got to go turn off the heat and let the oven cool as the the chicken continues to cook. I struggle so much with pan sauces. I always, I always just like cook the hell out of them and they end up being, they end up being like, like caramelized, which is okay too. Pan sauce is tough. Uh, especially because it tends to go like, it tends to feel too watery for a long, long time. And then all of a sudden it's sort of gunky and, and, and less viscous. But a good pan sauce, good pan sauce is, is quality. I think, the, I think the key is a constant stirring. Mm. That's what I would say. Constant and not, stirring. And not too hot, right? You, do, you don't want it boiling that aggressively. You want it in a nice simmer. I'm excited for you. <laughs> we'll see. Don't speak too soon. I can, I, can, I can brutalize chicken like nobody's business. So... The Huskies have one more practice on Friday, and then they take this break. What are you, um, what are you most interested to to learn about spring practice, or what are you most curious about these last twelve practices once they come back? Well, I mean, honest, I, I want to hear how the transfer, like the transfer specifically, <laughs> I know them as the Mississippi State running back and the Oklahoma State corner. Uh, whether they start start playing and and mixing in, and and how that looks. But mostly, I'm kind of interested in hearing how the defense starts to sort itself out. Because I feel like Washington's in a really good spot in, on the defensive line. Like, I feel like there's a lot of really good depth on the line, in large part because so many guys returned. Um, the fact that Olufosio is back and healthy at linebacker is exciting. I think that the defense, like that's the thing that I'm most interested in seeing how they change in a year where I feel like they kind of had to make do with some real profound challenges at depth in the secondary. Some of that through circumstances they didn't necessarily control. Like I think injuries hobbled them. But I don't think we got a great glimpse of what they want that defense to look like or what they think it can play like. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, to seeing that this year. Um, right up. I mean, they, they do some different things like Hampton played, played there. They call it the spot, the Husky spot, right? Where it's kind of this bigger, it's not really a slot corner cause he's kind of a thumper and almost a, a safety. I'll be interested to see what this defense is going to look like. Yeah. And I think Hampton, they're trying to harness the, the thumper aspect of his game by moving him back to safety. Yeah. Um, I really thought that was a, because Jimmy Lake moved him there in 2021, I believe. Uh, yeah, just in, in 21. And I kind of thought like he was going to be a sure starter, you know, 
and when he he wasn't, it was kind of like, huh. And then he had the, he got the penalty against Michigan, and and that kind of put him in the doghouse. And he did wind up starting a few games there by the end of the year. Um, but then the new staff came in and moved him to, to Husky, and he yeah, I think he started every game there except for one he was injured. So uh, he talked to him a little bit on Monday. He definitely feels like safety is his best position. I think he's he's happy to be back there because um, I think he does like that, especially in this defense. You know, they those guys are going to be more active in the in the run game. So um, I think he's happy there. Mish Powell at Husky is interesting because he is you know more of a true corner. And does have that that slot corner skill? We'll see if he sticks there. They've mentioned him repping at safety too. So that um, was one of the questions I had because with with Hampton there last year, um, it's a bigger player at that spot. Where kind of in today's college football, you've seen, I mean, even with the idea that your nickel corner is really a starter, and that actually might be a more difficult position than what's typically called the boundary corner or the guy that's on the the short side of the field. Um, Do you think that they have a preference for what kind of body, like if they want a bigger player or if they want a quicker player at the Husky spot? I think ideally you want someone bigger, but they had guys who were, I want to say they had some guys like 5'9", 5'10", listed at that position at, at Fresno. So, you know... Like Jimmy Lake's base defense was a nickel, and yes. he had Miles Bryant playing there. I mean, smallest, he, smallest guy in the field. He liked. He almost preferred having that small sort of shifty, but he needed that guy to be really feisty. Like he was like he's going to be small, but he has to be aggressive because he comes up and run D. Like Elijah Molden was the best at that. Yeah, and another undersized guy, five eleven. I think he was mm-hmm. listed at. So you like a Molden and Miles Bryant played nickel corner like a linebacker yes you know they had a linebacker's nose for the ball and i i think you need some of that at husky um it's in today's you know modern college football you got to have five guys who can cover so i i do think it it is it does end up being more of a slot corner more times than not um but like i like mish powell who's a very intelligent player um high football iq He's he's somebody who can he can explain a lot of these things really well, and I think he said that the coaches kind of took notice of how sure of a tackler he was on the edge as as a as a corner um, because when he got healthy and came back into the lineup, like you saw him sniff out a lot of you know some of those quick throws, and he's one who could who could fight through and and eliminate some stuff in the flats. So you know they I think one of the reasons they want to try him at Husky is is because of those tackling abilities. So that should tell you something about, you know, how active they want that guy to be in the run game too. It's a, I felt like last year Hampton was put in a tough spot and they didn't have a lot of options other than that. Like I felt that that was one of the, it was one of the things you, I thought you could see opponents go after was try to get opportunities to have, have him matched up with somebody and then look to go over the top and saying like, okay, that's really a safety. And if you ask him to cover a lot of ground going backward, that you've got, you've got an opportunity there. Um, So I'm interested to, I'm, I'm interested to see how that shakes out. And I just, I don't think we got much of an idea of how they want their secondary to play last year. Cause they were really just trying to, to plug as many holes as they could. Like it was a triage unit. 
Yeah, and they like I've had some conversations since since the season ended. Like they they very much knew like going into UCLA and especially Arizona State. Like, oh man, we just have no, we got no guys. You know, everybody's yeah. hurt. And like they, <laughs> we were talking to DeBoer a little bit after ASU and him just kind of shaking his head, like, man, you know, it was obvious that you know, forget about the guys who were like out, out. They had guys playing who probably yes. shouldn't have been. That's, and that's probably like the, and it happens at both the, the college and the NFL level is that you can't always just tell the health of a team based on who's playing no. because you will get into situations where you're like, dude, like if we had someone healthy, this guy wouldn't be playing, but we don't, we don't have an option that's better than 60% of this player. So he's just got to go out and make do. Um, and they, I mean, they lost two games. They survived it probably better than you would think they could have when you sat there and looked at it, in large part because the offense just scored a million points. Yeah, I think ASU especially is, I'm sure they look at that and it's it's like, man, everybody's just going to think that, you know, you laid an egg down there or they, they, they just got gotcha. you. And to a certain extent, maybe that's true. You could look at that ASU season and be like, mm, did you need to be at full strength to beat these guys? But... I'm sure that's one where they, they're really like, man, if you just got one or two. And then, of course, they got Asa Turner back for that game, and then he got ejected for targeting. So it was just kind of a, a comedy of errors um, in in some ways. But, yeah, uh, it'd be interesting to see what it looks like once Muhammad's out there, you know, because, like, Jordan Perryman was, was supposed to be that guy last year. And, like, per- hey, perfect example of, of, man, this guy's tearing it up in camp, and coaches are just raving about him. And, you know, he goes out and gets hurt week one and just didn't really have a chance to, to be that guy. And he played through a ton of a ton of pain and, and injuries and stuff. And so, you know, another one example of of the picture kind of changing from fall camp to the season, you know, m- maybe through no fault of his own, because we, we all know he was dinged up. But, um, you know, Muhammad's done it at the power five level. He was very you'll be very pleased to know, Danny, that PFF thinks quite highly of him. <laughs> I am excited about that. Yeah, I, I also I also want to hear his 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 take on uh on on a mother of children. <laughs> It'll be that's the first thing I'm gonna ask. Be like, have you seen the I'm a man? I'm forty. These guys. I was. It's a while ago now. Is that ten years? Oh, it's been sixteen. Has it really? Wasn't it two thousand seven? Oh, wild. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, so he would have been like four. <laughs> <laughs> They've got to watch it though, don't they? I mean, I'm if that's sure, your head, yeah, if like, that's your head coach, you have to watch. You commit you... to play for for Mike Gundy, like <laughs> that's probably like part of the uh, part of the uh, initiation. Yeah, like somebody, is... some some student staffer sends you the link, like, hey, like you know, this is this is the cut they made. I don't know if that's a selling point or not. Yeah, at least it's, I bet it at is. Least it's funny because like uh, it's, he's got he's he's having his his guys back right. That was the whole thing. Like whether he was actually that upset, who knows? But he he knew that he could use it to like make a big public show about how he was going to support his guy. I think to I I think the quarterback he was defending, I think the kid's name was Bobby Reed. I think he ended up not liking. Gundy I think he ended up feeling like Gundy was trying to cover up for the fact that one of his assistant coaches is the one who had basically sort of not spilled the beans but had 
had slammed the kid off the record, leading to this column that was written about his mom feeding him chicken uh, after this poor performance. And he was the implication being that he was too much of a mama's boy to to really be the starting quarterback going forward. So Gundy just went out there and just went ham. <laughs> to, to defend the kid the kid's like well you guys were the ones that were kind of crapping on me it's <laughs> just, just another oh that whole thing is, is is hilarious no i'm excited to see how he plays i also the the linebackers so i was excited to read that ulofoscio is, is he looks bigger um this this gets into the dangerous sort of territory of the training camp narratives of who's got the best body. Yeah. Who like jumps off the page, but he was, he was banged up best last night. Like life. he didn't really have a, ch- he didn't really have a chance to, to get say go at a hundred percent. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see how he'll look this year. I also don't know if it's just, if, maybe it's just the single digit. Cause he, he switched to number <laughs> five. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a bunch of guys that switched to single digits. Yeah. ZTF's number four. Mish Powell's number three. Jabbar Muhammad came in with number one. Uh, Devon Banks is number six. Do you like the single digits? I always think the single digits are pretty awesome. Yeah, I I don't know why either. Like, I get why they're cool and like they're in demand and everybody wants them, but I can't. I don't know that I can articulate it. It, Even the NFL, right? Like once they changed the rules that anybody can wear any number, like everybody jumped on the single digits. Yeah, now that's just anarchy, and you can't control any of that. But I always like the fact that, like, if you're truly a badass player, like, you usually get to dictate. Like, I was always like, Laurie Malloy was number nine. <laughs> that was freaking awesome. Yeah. Um, like, out there with a big linebacker neck roll playing safety with number nine on. I asked Romo Dunze last year, like, why he changed number one, and he was like, number one just got that oomph to it. <laughs> yeah. Good way to put it. Dude. Right, well, you should you should listen to Rick Neuheisel talk about the true number one. You'll never be yeah. the true number one unless you go to the University of Washington, Larry Stevens, the true number one. <laughs> um, talked to Chris Peterson yesterday. How's how's Coach Pete? Man, when you talk about like somebody living their best life, that's that's who I'm going to think of from now on because that guy just seems like he's got it. He's got it figured out in terms of like spending his time doing what what he wants to really yeah like no kidding he sounds he sounds like a different guy at least in terms of you know compared to our interactions with him as as media when he was coaching the team and um subscribers can can read about that this morning on on my on montlake.com i'll have that conversation but um yeah, he's uh, he's he's working with coaches. He's working with UW. He's doing the the TV thing. I, you know, I don't I, I don't think anybody was under any illusions that like when he stepped away, it was to just retire and you know hang out and go fishing or whatever. Um, I get the sense he's still very busy, um, but he's he's thinking about a lot of stuff. You know, you can tell he's he's done a lot of studying and and talked with a lot of people and um, seems to be very much enjoying this this post college football life. I didn't ask him. I, cause I, I promised myself I wasn't going to, cause I knew exactly what he was going to say. I didn't ask him if he was, was ever going to return to coaching. Cause he's got that yeah. response rehearsed and you know, you know what yeah. it's going to be. But, uh, based on the guy I'd talked to for, for 45 minutes on Tuesday afternoon, I'd be very, very surprised. Do you think he was burned out? So, uh, he hates that 
it, that people think that of him because in his yeah. mind burned out means I wasn't trying as hard anymore. I was so weighed down by the job and I hated it so much that I had checked out. I think, I think he conflates burnout with checked out. See, that's interesting. I just wrote and it's for, I feel like I'm plugging something here. Um, I've been doing a column for Seattle magazine. Um, which comes out, it's a bi-monthly magazine there in Seattle. And so I've been writing these personal essays. Uh, the one that I just filed is on burnout. And I actually, like, I'm, I've burned out, I would say, four times. And there's a book out called The End of Burnout that I found, like, super interesting about the topic itself. And burnout isn't that you're like, oh, I've checked out. Like, burnout is that sort of you feel drained by your job in a way that you find unhealthy. Like, and it's not just being fatigued because if you're just fatigued and like every, I mean, most people's job, unfortunately in America makes them exhausted and you take two weeks off and you feel better. Like that's, you're just tired. You're overextended, but burnout, it consists of being tired, being sort of depersonalizing work, like being cynical about it. And feeling less effective at it. Like you, you have feelings of frustration because you're not as good as your job at your job as you used to be. And, and I actually like as someone like I've clearly gone through burnout and it's, it's an unhealthy thing. Like it, it's, it's a bad thing to go through. So I don't think it's bad to acknowledge being burned out. I think it's actually part of the adjustment I know for me that has been extremely healthy that's interesting. So he, but he, he feels like a burnout is a, is a criticism of what he was putting into the job. Yeah. In fact, um, one of the cool things about the Las Vegas bowl in 2019, so that was his last game. He'd already resigned. Um, they have a like helicopter tour that the players or the, the two head coaches and a player go on and the, like an hour for an hour before that, the coaches are in a, just in a room and available to, to talk to. And so I got happened to get Chris Peterson one-on-one for like a half an hour at that thing. And I, I got a pretty decent Q&A out of it. And the, the headline for, for the story I wrote is, quote, I'm not burnt out, end quote, and other thoughts from Chris Peterson as his Washington tenure nears its end. And he said, um, quoting him here, he said, I heard like, oh, yeah, he's burnt out. I'm not burnt out. That didn't even cross my mind. I gave more of my heart and soul to this place this year with the things that we've been through than I feel like I've ever given. So it's not about that. It's about living true to who you are and are you enjoying this 24-7, 365 job? And if you're not, it's crazy to either not change your mindset or change your circumstances. So it was time for me to change. So I think in his mind when he hears burnt, people say he's burnt out, it's a vision of him like like not trying as hard, like a, like letting the, the weight get to him in a way that like affects his performance. Um, when... I think I think you articulated it pretty accurately. It's you know, you you are putting in one hundred percent or maybe you're even putting in more than a hundred percent. You're you're pushing yourself further than you should be because you're you feel unfulfilled for whatever reason or you you feel like what you're doing isn't enough and you need to you need to push harder to meet whatever standard you've set for yourself or that you think has been set for you or whatever it is. So um, he, but he, he does not like that phrase. <laughs> Christian, I'm going to go turn the oven off for my chicken. I'm going to be back in 10 seconds. We don't want the chicken to be burnt out. I don't know that it was quite 10 seconds. How's it looking? 
<laughs> I didn't look. I didn't open the oven. I don't want to disturb it. It's it's going to get to a nice golden brown. The definition of burnout that is, and this is from that book called The End of Burnout by Jonathan Malesic, who I actually interviewed, um, is the experience, like the the ideals, what you think you're going to get from work or what you expect to get from work doesn't match up to what it actually feels like. Like that there's a gap between what you expect work to provide for you and what you actually get out of it. For me, my burnout originated, like there's some of it that is like I had at different times, I've had a demanding job in terms of schedule and travel and all of those things. But the biggest thing for me was that I expected a level of validation and fulfillment to come from my job that was unrealistic because I grew up as a sports nut who wanted to be a sports journalist because I have some very idealized and I would say like sort of reflection of the modern ideas that work should be meaningful and that the paycheck isn't as important as the actual experience and having control over my work and all like the, what I expected my job to provide for me was such a high ask. Like I expected so much that it didn't provide it. And then I would end up like, wow, that doesn't feel good. Or it becomes hard because all jobs at different points are hard. And you're like, I, I need something from my job that I'm not getting. And my only response or my only thing that I knew how to do was to work harder, to give more to my job, to get more affirmation, to get more, like to, or at the very least feel like I'm progressing in my career and I'm not going to get fired. And, and ultimately, you're operating at a deficit. You're giving more to your job than you're getting out of it. And it was, for me, it was very unhealthy. The last time that I burned out, like specifically, I know exactly where it was. It was November 27th. It was in Tampa, Florida. I woke up with a pretty profound hangover because I was drinking too much. I couldn't find the Montreal Expos hat that I'd worn the day before because I drank too much. And I had like this patch, like this angry red rash on the small of my back. And I was like, I hurt. And I thought, okay, it's just a hangover and I had too much bourbon. Well, it turned out like the rash was shingles. Uh, I was exhausted. I definitely like had gotten to the point where I had a full-fledged drinking problem because that was one of the ways that I was coping with the fact that I, I felt really poorly. And so like, yeah, I was burned out. So I, now I've, I kind of want to reach out to Chris Peterson and tell him like, you got the whole definition of burnout wrong. It's not that you're not doing enough. It's that what you're doing you're not getting enough back from it. And changing in that scenario is really healthy. Like, it's actually what we should all be coached and urged to do. I don't mean to trivialize your anguish, but I think you just wrote Atmosphere's next single. <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me what happened to the Expo's hat. <laughs> well, did you find it? That was my next question. No, I never found it. Oh, man. Lost in Tampa. Lost my Expo's hat. <laughs> I'm a slow typer, a so-so writer, but I've been the poop since I was an infant in diapers. That's a little old school atmosphere, though. There you go. Um, That's pre-dad atmosphere. <laughs> it is. It is. Now they're talking about stepping on Legos. Um, oh, that's interesting. So you don't think you don't think Peterson? You can't. Did, did, is he like a consultant now? Is he like a life coach? Yeah, I mean, he's done consulting for Washington's um, athletic department. 
and he talked a little bit about you know once a month they they kind of gather all the coaches you know who are on campus and who can fit it in their schedule and stuff and you know he said he's he learns a lot from them and you know says that if if he were to come back and do it today he would he would do it differently he'd be a different coach oh interesting and he also talked too about you know how if if you're going to be a head coach in this modern college football landscape like you need to just stop complaining about the way things have changed yeah you can't you, i i would agree with that cuz that's the one thing i don't know if he could handle nil yeah and so like i cuz i think that was part of the narrative when he stepped down was like oh you can see all these things coming right nil transfer portal yeah this doesn't you know this just doesn't seem like a game that chris peterson wants to be involved in and i think as he's taken a step back and really you know kind of see the bigger picture and and isn't isn't in the thick of it anymore i think it's it seems as if it's occurred to him that like hey you either do the job or don't but Mm -hmm. you 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 just sound like you're stuck in the past if all you're ever doing is reminiscent about the way things were yeah man it's really interesting um it was fun when we talked to jackson kirkland realizing that Kirkland talked about how like Chris Peterson was kind of intimidating. I never really thought about that before, but like he clearly does carry sort of like, he's a serious dude. Like it's not like he's Mr. (laughs) Happy party fun time. Um, And it's, it's interesting to think about that because he's partly because he looks so young. You don't think of him as being older, but I mean, he's late fifties, right? Was he 54 when he resigned? Yeah, I think he's like 58. We'll summon Wikipedia. <laughs> he is 58. There we go. He's 59 in October. Um, the, I, when Jackson Kirkland said that, what I thought of, and I forget which player it was, but someone said that he's intimidating in, in the sense that he's, he's like the dad who's, who's not mad, he's just disappointed. Yes, exactly. Like, I never thought of him as a screamer, but I could see like where they're like, yeah, I don't want to mess around and have him look down his nose at me and wonder what the hell I'm doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, it, I, I think it's less like Don James where I, a bunch of Don, you know, former Don James players have said like, oh, he, he had an open door policy, but you didn't want to go in there. Like, I, it, it wasn't like that where the relationship is so distant that you just, you know, don't don't make eye contact and keep it moving, you know? It's mm-hmm. more just like, man, I, if I screw up, like I I know exactly what that conversation is going to be like, and I I have so much respect for this guy, and I I look up to him so much. It's just going to really hurt to like hear from him how disappointed he is in me. I think that I think that's probably more what it is with Chris Peterson. Yeah. All right, I got one more thing I have to tend to. Sorry, Christian. I'm oh, here comes the pan sauce. Chicken's looking good. Was it the pan sauce? Uh, not the pan sauce yet. Okay. Just that I wanted to make sure that the heat was out, and then it looked like there was there was some suspicious smoke coming in there. But it's it. it <laughs> I wound up. It, you determined it to be friendly smoke. That's exactly right. I was like, it's it it it, it looks like everything is is going according to plan. It's a so, nice uh, moving toward golden brown. Um, sometimes some smoke comes up like out of the burners when I'm I've got something in the oven, and I'm always like, is that should I be that's doing exactly that? Exactly what it was. I was like, ah, I better check on that. Uh. Have you ever gotten a sense of Peterson's relationship with Jimmy Lake? And that might be almost like an, because I, I feel like that's one of the bigger mysteries. Like clearly like Jimmy worked on his staff and Chris was really close to him, but it also, 
And maybe maybe Chris didn't want to be close to the program when Jimmy was there because he thought the shadow he cast would be, would be too long. But it does seem like he's closer to Washington now than than he was in like 2021. Yeah, um, he definitely didn't want to be that guy who's just hanging around. You know, oh, I resigned, but I'm Barry Alvarez. Yeah, I'm still in the building all the time, and I'm I'm undermining the new regime's authority. And like he, yeah, I think anybody who knows anything about him knew that that was like the last thing he was ever going to do. This is not coming from Chris Peterson; just my own analysis. Um, his relationship with the program now has less to do with like his desires or willingness, and more to do with who the head coach is. Yeah. You know, like Kalen DeBoer thinks it's awesome that there's this, you know, future Hall of Fame head coach who's just right there and he can use as a resource. And he, you know, he said it is is the press conference before the Kent State game last year. He's like, oh, yeah, like I'd have to be, you know, you'd be crazy not to not to tap into that. And they, they spoke during the hiring process. And um, Chris Peterson was, you know, one of. Jen Cohen's like inner circle who she leaned on a little bit for, for feedback and, and advice during that coaching search. And, you know, so I think he got to know DeBoer a little bit um, through that process. And, you know, I, I think like Kaylin DeBoer is, is very open to wanting alumni and everybody who's been associated with UW in the past, to, you know, feel like it's their home and, and stuff like that. So obviously he's going to want Chris Peterson to feel that way. I don't think he like, you know, comes into the building all the time or whatever, but like he's their, he's their guest speaker at this year's coaching clinic this spring. And, um, I know he still has relationships with players. Like you'd be talking like at a, at a said the other day, you know, oh, like, well, I was talking to coach Pete and, you know, he'd mentioned like the, the four agreements, which is a, a motivational book that, that he's into one of many. Yeah, he texted Peyton Henry. You know, Peyton Henry said that, that Peterson had texted him after the Oregon game last year, you know, saying, Hey, great job or whatever. Um, so you hear little things like that. Like he, obviously he's still, he's still keeping in touch with these guys. And I, you know, it's obvious that he, he, he has a, a healthy working relationship with Caitlin DeBoer also. And I, you know, I think that's DeBoer is going to make sure that, that he initiates that. Yeah. It is different for DeBoer too, right? Because he's a degree removed. Like, I think that probably would have been, it's easy for me to, someone like me to dump on Jimmy Lake and say like, Oh, there was, but that's a hard thing of like, you're the guy right after Chris Peterson and you worked on his staff trying to sort of, if it's not even set up a wall, but like have a little bit of buffer and distance there between you and Chris Peterson is a really natural and healthy thing to do. Um, And it's different for DeBoer just because like he's had his own program and he's, he's coming here and it's, they're more set up as equals from the outset where Jimmy was the guy that was promoted from Chris's staff. Like that, that's, it's just going to work differently because of that. Yeah. And like, I can't blame Jimmy Lake for kind of having that mentality of like, this is not Chris Peterson's program anymore. Like I'm the guy, I'm the head coach. There's only 66 of me in the country, you know, at the power five level, like I deserve this. I'm not some, you know, he was 42, Right, forty four. Yes. Yeah, he wasn't a kid. Yeah, I've paid my dues. I've I've been a position coach and a coordinator. I've been in the NFL and in college and you know, why should I do it exactly the way that Chris Peterson did? I'm not Chris Peterson, you know. Yeah. That so he in and that he was kind of dealing with that sort of expectation that it was still gonna be 
built for life and you know this yeah. is just a, this is continuity this is a continuation this is a just a you know a, a changing of the guard it's it's not a regime change it's you know and so when that blows up like it you you look like you were ungrateful or whatever because you tried to do it a different way and it it didn't work out but yeah i mean i it makes sense that he you know yeah. he wouldn't be all about like oh like coach pete coach pete you know what do i do it's one of those really this happens across sports but it happens in college football i think it's more pronounced than others where we take an observed result and then we work backward to find out what was unique or different about that coach and then we ascribe that trait responsibility for the result like for an example like rick neuheisel takes over for mccartney at colorado and colorado is incredible like, I mean, they sort of not take a next step forward because they were really good under McCartney, but they become kind of this hot property coached by this young coach who takes his players on raft trips and they're beating Michigan with a Hail Mary from Cordell. Like all of that stuff is is happening. And everybody's like, it's because Rick is so young and because he's so like incredible and he speaks to these recruits in a way and they're going to recruit to this different caliber of player. And then things start to go off a tr- off a cliff. New Isles' behavior is the same. He's still the same yokel who's singing at the campfire and playing the acoustic guitar. But now it's like Coach Raft Trip has no discipline. <laughs> That's what you see in the, not to get back to the Charlie Weiss book, because clearly that is a really important and seminal sports journalism uh, to him. But like his big thing that he, he used to turn Notre Dame around was that he came in in his first meeting with the players. He understood that some of them didn't want Tyrone Willingham fired. So he said, look in the mirror. Like you're the reason he got canned. And you know what? If we go five and seven and six and six, my butt's going to be fired out of here too. So there's no excuses. This is on you. And when they're awesome in that first year, well, he brings accountability to the program, and he demanded that they look for answers. And then it turns out, well, actually, Charlie Weiss didn't have much in the way of answers, and when it became mostly his players, they stunk. And, well, that's because he didn't offer anything new or novel as a head coach. He just offered a bunch of, like, Bill Parcells, Bill Belichick-sounding crap that nobody took seriously. So it's the same behavior that we ascribe, like, a totally different... If Jimmy Lake had taken Washington to a Rose Bowl, I would probably be here explaining that the fact that he sort of set up a little bit of a fence between he and Chris Peterson and differentiated the program is the reason he was able to take it to a height. And because like he lost his mind and smacked a player in the helmet and lost to Montana and the program went into a ditch, I was like, well, that's clearly one of the reasons it went there because he wouldn't listen and bring in one of these assets that he had there. So anyway, that's just a long way of saying I'm an idiot. Uh, we love the Charlie Weiss book, by the way. We can <laughs> reference that. I better write this thing so I stop mentioning it again. I kind of feel like I need to read it now. God, it's so bad. Can you it's can just... you autograph um, your autographed copy of it? There's a chapter where he just talks about his friends and what they did growing up in New Jersey playing wiffle ball. <laughs> he even specifies that when we played wiffle ball, it was the kind that had the holes on just one side. <laughs> so you could throw a curveball. And I'm like, you moron, is there any other kind of wiffle ball? 
I know that his high school baseball team had only 10 players because four guys got kicked off, so they just all had to play all the time. Why is that in a book? <laughs> uh, you know, it made him into mm, who he is. God. More, doing more with less. <laughs> what the hell? Uh, do you think the Pac-12 will have a media rights deal by the time we sit down to record episode 44? I think so, because it sounds like it's... At least we're going to have an idea about the shape of it. It sounds like... Like, he's going to tell everybody what they got there in Vegas. And I'm assuming that that's going to be the point where either you hear a thumbs up or thumbs down. And if they don't like the sound of it, I think we're going to start hearing. And it'll probably start with the four corner schools potentially going to the Big 12. I will. I'll still be surprised if that happens. I, I, I will be, too. It just doesn't seem to pencil out based on reported projections i know the athletic story um about the power struggle between the big 12 and pac 12 had I, I think they the the consulting firm whose numbers that they cited had it right about what the big 12 is getting per school so would be surprised if it, it isn't in that neighborhood one way or another but who knows man it's 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 a magical mystery tour with Varying twists and turns, and Gonzaga's involved somewhere, and SMU and San Diego State, and who knows? You know my belief on Gonzaga. They should have to field a football team. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Using only their basketball team. I don't care who it is. <laughs> they can do whatever they want. I want to beat the tar out of them in football. <laughs> they can win basketball every single freaking year. I want to. I want to stomp a mud hole and, and absolutely do. dog walk them in, in football. <laughs> uh, that's all we've got for this week, folks. Thanks for checking in. We will talk to you next week.